The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, if you have uh, a piece of paper and a pen, I want you to write down nine words right now that are going to come up through our teaching. If there's one thing you get this morning, I want it to be this. Those nine words, if I can count correctly, I only have an associate's degree from RCC, it's this. As an act of worship in response to grace. As an act of worship in response to grace. If you have your Bibles, why don't you open them up to Mark chapter 2. We'll be there in a little bit, starting in verse 23. But before we jump into our text, I want to share a little story with you guys. About a day in my life that would change ultimately the trajectory of the rest of my days. That day specifically was June 22nd, 2001. It's, a not, it's not a very important date for any of you guys listening, so please don't write it down. June 22nd, 2001. I was 11 years old. Like I said earlier, I'm not good at math, so I praise the Lord that I was born in 1990 because it's easy to figure out how old I am at any given point. Up into this point in my life, I'd been obsessed with quite a few things, mostly sports. I love football, I love baseball, I love basketball, I love wakeboarding, I loved everything from table tennis to volleyball. You name it, I loved it. But there was one love and one passion that hadn't quite crept into my life yet, and it was the passion of cars, motorsports. Grant, you in here? Where's Grant? I don't know where he's at. Nah, dang, he's gone. It's a high school student. He loves cars. Every week we get to chat about it. It's awesome. June 22nd, 2001 was the day that I was introduced to car culture. And, and this is going to seem ridiculous to a lot of you. Maybe some of you weren't here for this or you weren't interested in this. But if you're around my age, perhaps when the best movie of all time came out on that specific day, you got changed as well. It's a movie called The Fast and the Furious. Has anybody heard of it before? Okay, good. Now, I love The Fast and the Furious. Uh, some of the ways that it changed me. One, I, I thought that Honda Civics were cool. I wanted a Honda Civic with a body kit, and I really wanted those neon lights underneath. And I thought it was really cool that I could go to Walmart and buy some chrome hubcaps that I could throw on my future car. And I even remember back in the day that there was a website called the HondaCivicSuperstore.com, and I'd go to that website, and I would build out my dream Honda Civic just like the ones in The Fast and the Furious. After that, Too Fast, Too Furious came out, and then Tokyo Drift, and on and on and on it goes. These are my favorite movies. I'm ashamed to say, really, they're not great movies. I'm ashamed to say I've watched these movies collectively probably over a hundred times. They're so ridiculous, but I loved them dearly. Then eventually, guys, eventually, uh, I started noticing specifically... After I'd gotten married, I remember, uh, I remember my wife and I started having conversations about these movies. If you've seen them, then you know that they're probably not the most edifying or pure movies that somebody could watch. And so my wife and I started having conversations about whether or not this is a God-glorifying action for me to be watching these movies. And again, this is an idol in my life. I love Paul Walker with a passion. I wear long socks with shorts every time because of him. But... <laughs> 
But we start talking about this, and sooner or later, it's clear that God and his loving conviction of my heart is leading me to ultimately lay these movies aside. I wasn't going to watch them anymore because I wanted to honor the Lord with the things that I watch. I didn't really want to fill my mind with that stuff anymore, and so I have watched The Fast and the Furious one time with my wife since, with VidAngel, which supposedly filters out all the junk in a movie, but it didn't really work, and it wasn't as satisfying as it used to be. So, hence, I haven't watched those movies in a long, long time. And my point is this, and this will come up over and over again, again, as we teach, but um, when God asked me to lay that movie series aside... Or furthermore, when my wife and I look up on Common Sense Media or online IMDb every single show or movie before we watch it so that we know what exactly is in there so that there's no nudity in that or there's no, nothing crossing the line. When we look up that movie to make sure it's appropriate for our eyes to honor the Lord, what we're doing is putting that boundary around ourselves as an act of worship in response to grace to honor the Lord. I want to tell you guys another story. Um, I remember this is going to date me quite a, quite a few years for the kids in the room, but around the similar time, my wife and I were driving to the mall, and we went to the mall to get a CD. Like, you'd go to the mall and you'd buy a CD. And this CD uh, was a metal band, a band that I'd been looking forward to hearing for a long, long time, was super excited about this album. And if you think metal is evil and of the devil, you're wrong. It's awesome, even though it sounds like the cookie monster screaming and you can't quite understand what anybody's saying. But we go to the mall, we get this metal album, and then I'm so pumped, and I put it in the CD player, and I just remember we're driving uh, back to Jacksonville from Medford, and I start rocking out to these breakdowns, and I had a little bit more hair back then, so like the hair would swoosh around. And I just remember, as I'm listening to this album, I'm so stoked on it, and then all of a sudden I start hearing what it is they're saying. And yes, the more you listen to it, you can actually start to understand them. They don't just sound like a growling monster. So I'm listening to this, and all of a sudden I start hearing cuss words, right? I start hearing F-bombs and GDs, and, and all of a sudden I'm looking at my wife, and I'm going, man, this is trash. Why am I listening to this? So in classic Mitch, dramatic fashion, if you know me, this might not sound like a surprise. I just look at my wife, look at my CD player, eject the CD, grab it, roll down Jesse's window, and then just frisbee it out the window. I'm like, I'm done with this. And this is like, I just spent $12 on this CD, and back then that was a lot for me. I was still in ministry, so being broke is just part of the deal. But why did I do that? Was... Was me not listening to that album or not wanting to fill my mind with music that's full of a bunch of junk, is that so that I can earn God's favor? Is that so I can work my way to the Lord? Is that so I can strive to attain His love and grace and mercy? Or is me making that decision to pursue holiness or purity, is that as an act of worship in response to grace? We're going to get into this later. There's a ton of examples that I could go into. But listen, we as Christians who understand the good news of Jesus Christ need to filter and funnel everything we do through that. Is this an act of worship in response to grace? Or 
Are we getting it backwards? Are we thinking that our good works or restraining or or refraining from doing something, are we thinking that that's the thing that's earning us God's favor and grace? And the order that we have those two things in is extremely, extremely important. Today in our text, what we're going to see are some religious leaders, some Pharisees that had those two things backward. On one end, you have as an act of worship in response to grace. The other is we better do this right so God can love us and accept us because this is what righteous, holy people do. And if we don't do that, we're going to fail to attain what it is that we need to attain for God. Those two things are opposite one another. But we're going to see a bunch of religious leaders that strived to follow the rules to the T, that cared so much about traditions that cared so much about their own interpretation of the law that they ultimately had, and we see it, this is all evidence of it, that they had a fundamental misconception or misunderstanding about how someone is justified before God, how someone is made right before God. If you guys would pray with me real quick as we dive into our text, starting in verse 23. Lord God, before we read this, we just understand that there's so many treasures in here for us to mine out. God, we pray that you would give clarity this morning. We pray that you would pierce through every single heart in this room, that you would comfort the afflicted, that you would challenge the legalist in this room, and that you would remind us all of the simple truth, the foundation of this doctrine of justification by faith, by grace. You might stand on your firm foundation. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. If you'd read with me, we're going to read this in two different sections. We'll start in verse 23, read through verse 28 to begin with. One Sabbath... He was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who are with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. First two words in verse 23 as we walk through this verse by verse and give us a little bit of context about what day of the week this was on as it reminds us that it is on the Sabbath that this whole situation occurs. And before we continue, I do want to give you guys a little bit of background on the Sabbath. Maybe you're unaware that's not a word that we use ever. It's just a word uh, that we find in Scripture. And so I just wanted to give you a little bit of background. First and foremost, it's found in Exodus chapter 20. If you want to write this down, you can. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. And if you're familiar with the scripture, or if you open up to Exodus 20 and read the first heading, then you'll see that that chapter contains the Ten Commandments. 
You begin reading that chapter, and you read in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above and the earth beneath. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Then you get to verse 8, and we start reading what I think is a neglected commandment, one that's easy to forget, and it says this. I'll read it in its entirety. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And there it is. If you were to go beyond this, continue reading through the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, you'd see that the Bible has a lot to say about this Sabbath. Just in Exodus 31, the Bible tells us that people, the Israelites, were to, above all, keep the Sabbath, that they might know that it's the Lord who sanctifies. It says that it's a sign forever and a covenant forever. So right off the bat, just so that we understand what we're about to read or what we just read goes on on the Sabbath day with Jesus and his disciples. And this Sabbath day is a God-ordained day of rest for the people of God to honor the Lord, to worship the Lord, to cease from working as a sign forever and as a covenant forever. And it's a big deal. It was a big deal to the Israelites. It was a big deal in the Old Testament. So with that knowledge, we read on in verse 23, one Sabbath, he, it's Jesus, was going through the grain fields as they made their way. His disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And again, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? We pause there. The disciples are off with Jesus doing their own thing, picking up some free food, which let's be honest, There's not much greater than food in this world, and free food is just that much better. Can't blame them. And this really irritates and irks the Pharisees. And we're going to get into why exactly, but I did just want to give us some more context on what it is the disciples were doing here. See, they were actually enjoying a provision that God had set forth in the Old Testament for sojourners and the poor and people that were hungry. You don't have to write this down or read it, but just again so you have it. In Leviticus 23, 22, Moses tells the people this, and I quote, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So God says, hey, if you have a field, this is what I want you to do. I want you to leave the outskirts of your field unharvested so that if there's a needy person among you, you that needs to come and get some food, they can come and glean food from your field. This is like old school food stamps for the needy, okay? On top of this, in Deuteronomy 23, 25, God says this, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand. So my point is the disciples in doing this are actually soaking in the blessings of the Lord, 
as they pluck the heads of grain according to God's law to get themselves a quick snack. Now, quick disclaimer before we move on. Times have changed. This is Southern Oregon. I do not recommend hopping into somebody's field and stealing their corn or crop. Again, this is Southern Oregon. Most people have a gun, and if you mess with Farmer Fred, then most likely he's going to be excited at the opportunity to use that gun. So I don't recommend doing this. And if you do steal some food from somebody, please don't tell them that God told you that you could. Now let's come back to the Pharisees real quick. The whole thing frustrates them greatly as they see the disciples doing this. Not because the disciples are getting the free food, but because all this is happening on the Sabbath, the day of rest. And apparently for them, the disciples picking the grain, rubbing it in their hands, and throwing it in their mouth was considered a work that they deemed contrary to the law that God had given in Exodus 20 and elsewhere. And this is where Jesus responds, verses 25 and 26. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. First thing we do need to note is this. If you're not a fan of sarcasm, I do apologize because it's a lot of fun. You can sense the sarcasm here when Jesus is talking to these Pharisees and scribes that have spent so many hours of their life reading through the Old Testament. He's like, have you guys never read that story in 1 Samuel 21 about David? If you guys are unfamiliar with this story, I'll break it down for you real quick. The story picks up for Samuel 21 when Saul is still the king of Israel. But Samuel has already anointed David as the future king that will reign after him. And although Saul and David's relationship started off not on that bad of a foot, as you can imagine, there begins to be some tension in the relationship. Up until this point, uh, Saul gets super mad at David. He's filled with jealousy and rage. And David ultimately has to flee for his life like an exile. David eventually gets hungry, as you might imagine. And, and some, at some point realizes that, that in the house of the God that he loves and serves, there's some hot bread that would do him very well to go munch. So David goes to the house of the Lord. The priest comes out to him. David makes up some story about being on the king's business, assures the priest that all the men that are with him have been purified according to the rites and rituals. And then ultimately the priest gives him the show bread or the bread of the presence and David gets a meal. If you want to do more digging into that, again, 1 Samuel 21. And this is where this gets a little tricky, right? Because although God gave that bread to the priests for them to eat and them alone, and although David seemed to lie to get the bread, Jesus still uses this story to set a precedent explaining why the disciples plucking the grain, rubbing it in their hands, and eating it was in fact lawful, contrary to what the Pharisees thought at the time. And the reason for this seems to be found in verse 27 as Jesus proclaims again. Why don't you read with me? 
And he said to them, quote, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus, again, uh, claiming to be of divine origin, calls himself the Son of Man and the Lord of the Sabbath. And he says, with authority, hey, the Sabbath that I created was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's challenging the Pharisees' view on the topic, and he's exposing the fact that in all their zeal and all their passion for every little bit of the law, they had actually missed the entire heart of the law and thus missed the giver of the law as well. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. A Bible commentator just put it this way, quick and easy summary for this passage. It says, the Sabbath is not a burden, but a privilege made and meant for man's highest good. The Pharisees had taken what was supposed to be a God-glorifying and God-honoring sign of a covenant forever. They took the gift of the Sabbath rest and turned it into a tremendous burden for themselves and for the people of Israel. But if you've read through the gospel accounts, then you know that this probably isn't a surprise. But this is pretty par for the course for the Pharisees. They loved to add to the law. They loved to find gray area in the law, like with this Sabbath law where God says just don't labor. And there's a whole lot of gray area, not a lot of specifics of what you can and can't do. So the Pharisees love to sit down and, and, and take a black pen and a, right pen, a white pen. And they love to color in the gray area and make lists of do's and don'ts. And they like to split hairs so that way they know exactly how it is that they can be in the right when it comes to God's law. And then again, they place that burden on other people. But again, this is what they did, right? Mark 7, 7, we're going to get there eventually. But ultimately, Jesus says this about the Pharisees, that they take the traditions of man and they teach them as if they were doctrine. The Pharisees were guilty of this, adding to the law, taking the traditions of man and teaching them as if they were Doctrine, In other words, holding their own interpretation of the law on the same level of authority as the law itself. And Jesus in our text was challenging these religious leaders on that interpretation of the law and showing that it was wrong. Again, they had missed it. And just to clarify, guys, I'm not, I'm not saying Jesus wasn't saying that the law is wrong. Right? Jesus himself said, hey, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So in this moment, he's not casting aside the law. He's not being anti-law. But again, he's simply pushing against the traditions of these leaders as they seek to place unnecessary burdens on people that God never meant to put on the people in the first place. We're going to talk more about these Pharisees and their interpretation of God's law and their tradition in our clothes. But for now, we'll, we'll move on to uh, the next section of our text, chapter 3, verse 1, if you'd read it with me. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered 
hand. Verse 2, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. First of all, they in this passage, they watch Jesus as the Pharisees. They're in the synagogue. We're still on the Sabbath. And we're really in the same theme, same conflict as the Pharisees are still being dumb and trying to accuse Jesus and his disciples of breaking the law. A couple things that we see in those first two verses. First of all, these these Pharisees really need to get a life, okay? All they do is apparently watch Jesus, which is creepy if you think about it, but they watch Jesus and they're just constantly trying to pin him in something that he's not supposed to be doing. They're wasting their time. The second thing is this, that there's irony in here. In verse 2, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. In those words, you see that the Pharisees really didn't doubt that Jesus was able to heal the man. It's not that they were like, oh, I wonder if Jesus has the power to heal. No, they've already seen Jesus has the power to do many mighty miracles, but they were more concerned with, again, adherence to their version of the Old Testament law. That's kind of goofy. And then thirdly, these Pharisees really did need to hear Jesus' own words as he summarized the entire Old Testament law. Does anybody remember what Jesus said? The whole law of Moses, if you were to take it and summarize it into one or two commandments, it's this, four words, right? Love God and love people. It's really what it can be boiled down to. And what we see here in the text is the exact opposite of this. They were so worried about their staunch, burdensome rules and regulations about the Sabbath that they showed no compassion for the man with the withered hand at all. Again, in verses 1 and 2, we see that they would have rather, ultimately, that this man be crippled than for Jesus to do what they deemed not lawful on the Sabbath. How ridiculous, right? A man with a withered hand, you care more about your rules and traditions than seeing that dude healed. As I was working through this, right, I thought about the teaching last week that Pastor Paul gave here and and really how these teachings connect It's one story that flows. And and we looked at this as we're working through this on Tuesday. And I think it was Sam that said, man, isn't this the perfect example of the dead religion that Paul spoke of last week? Isn't this the perfect picture of what an old, dry, crusty, non-supple wineskin would have looked like if you remember last week's text? Where was the heart for people? Where was the heart for people? And before we go on, I just want to pause for a second and acknowledge, look, it's an easy thing to read this and be like, wow, that's really messed up, that you would rather this dude remain crippled than just see your preferences and rules be broken. But I do have to ask the question, for me, for you, I need us to examine ourselves for a little bit and and ask these questions. Look, what opinions, preferences, traditions, whatever, have we valued over people in our own lives? 
How many people have we trampled over or run over or simply neglected in pursuit of our zeal and passion for something that wasn't even primary as it related to the kingdom of God and the gospel? I think it's different for everybody. Some low-hanging fruit for us. I'll just give you guys some things that you can see in culture. We don't want to beat a dead horse. But right now, this just seems like one of the most obvious ways is this. Our political views, not necessarily kingdom values, but gosh, how easy is it? To turn to somebody that views things differently than you and just go, wow, I'm against you. We're enemies now because we believe something else. And you're willing to trample that person to uphold these values that you have that, again, are secondary to the gospel. Another one we were talking about this this morning is we were getting prepped for service. And this is a real tough one, but... Man, I was thinking about valuing and caring for and loving people versus my own preferences and traditions and ways of doing things and what I want, seeking my own comfort and selfishness. And I thought about, man, when you drive through Medford and you see tents and you see garbage and you see uh, the homeless population, it's so easy to let your heart go towards frustration and hatred because you think that these people are infringing upon the comfort that you want and so deserve, right? Where's our heart for the people? I don't want to be like the Pharisees. I just cared more about my own stuff than the very people that God made in His image. The very people that we're called to minister to. The very people that we're called to love. Love God love people. The Pharisees got it wrong and we need to be watchful so that we don't fall into the same exact trap. Lest a man with a withered hand be healed by Jesus in our presence and we be like the Pharisees, mad, frustrated, angry, because we don't have a mental file to put that into or it wasn't lined up with our interpretation of how things should have happened in the first place. Would our heart be for the people that God has made, unlike these men? Would you read back with me in verse 3 of chapter 3? And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. In our story, Jesus bids the man to come in the sight of everyone. Exposes and challenges the Pharisees' lame legalism yet again and states that it is indeed lawful to do good and uh, good, do good on the Sabbath. And he does that through a piercing question. And, and the men stand there in silence in their pride, arrogance, and frustration, not willing to give Jesus an answer because they knew that they were cornered in their foolishness.
Verse 5, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. It's really fun to kind of dive into the biblical stories, use your imagination a little bit to to try to imagine just what it would be like to be there in that moment. And I started thinking about this, this man with the withered hand, how intense it would have been for him and everybody around. As as right here, Jesus, in that moment, asked the man with the withered hand to come in front of everybody and expose the thing that he was probably very ashamed of. If you guys remember the disciples that asked Jesus a question in the Gospels concerning a man that was blind, and it gives us a little insight into some of the the cultural uh, perspectives towards somebody who maybe had a withered hand or somebody who was born blind or something like that. When they they saw the man, they said, hey, uh, who was it? I don't know if it's the disciples. I'm having a hard time remembering the disciples or somebody else. Who was it that was, who is the sin, this man or his parents, that this guy was born blind? So in other words, this guy physically has an ailment. He must have done something really bad to deserve this, or his parents must have done something really bad to deserve this. And quite possibly it was true with this man with the withered hand as well. So again, in that moment, Jesus asked him to expose the very thing that this guy probably didn't want people seeing. Or at least he didn't want all their eyes on it. And then lastly, if you guys can envision this with me, right? In this moment, Jesus asked this dude with a withered hand to expose and stretch out the hand. He's asking him to do the seemingly impossible by stretching out a hand that had ceased to work. The muscles were probably atrophied. The nerves were damaged and weren't firing. Perhaps the bones were crooked and bent. But I love this picture when Jesus says, stretch out your hands. The guy in front of everybody and all of his frailty and all of his weakness with all of his flaws obeys Jesus in faith and by the power and grace of our Lord does the impossible and extends his hand for all to see. In this moment, guys, there's nothing he could have done to heal himself. And yet in humility, he brings to Jesus his weakness and Jesus heals the man. What an incredible picture of the gospel. Here are the Pharisees, as we've said time and time again, concerned so much with polishing the outside of their cup. They're obsessed with showing their best side. Thinking that their interpretation of the law along with their traditions are what make them right before God. having a fundamental misconception about how somebody is justified before God. And then, and then here comes, they're all standing on the outside, and then here comes this guy. No polished cup. Wounded and sick. 
And if I'm honest, I look, look at this story and, and I see myself in that man with a withered hand. I see myself in the man with a withered hand as, as my life, my soul has just been marred with sin. This is me pre-Christ. I, I'm sinful. I have an ailment that I can't get rid of on my own. I'm so bad, I can't even pretend to be something that I'm not. I have nothing, but then it's in that moment when I'm humble before the Lord and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus calls me to follow Him. Jesus calls me forward. I have nothing but my, my sin and my shame and all the stuff that it's so easy to try to hide from other people. And I just stand up and everybody's watching and I just lay everything I got before Jesus. Jesus takes the broken things and He... He heals them just like he did for this man. Just like he did for this man. And the Pharisees, through everything they're saying in these two sections of Scripture, I'm going to say this again, it's clear that they completely misunderstood how somebody is made right before God. The law couldn't save. Romans 8, 2 through 4, you can go there, underline it, write a note in your journals if you want to. Actually, I'll read it. Why not? Romans 8, 2. This is where they missed it. It says, For the law, the spirit of life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Guys, these Pharisees had it dead wrong. The law, everything that they were working so hard to adhere to perfectly could never save It could never save. On the contrary, the law brought death and they missed it. Justification, being saved, being made right with God never happened through the law. Even the patriarch of the Israelites got it. If you look in Romans 4, it shows us that, that Abraham was justified by faith. He believed God and it was accounted him as righteousness. Why, why am I so concerned with this, guys? It's, it's really this. When it comes to this misconception about how somebody's justified before God, things like adherence to the law and preferences and our own interpretation of God's law, um, I see in this text, I see in myself... Um, a, a, another trap that we can so easily fall into as Christians. 
And this is why I started off this, this morning by talking about my, my love for the Fast and Furious movies and how God had asked me to lay that aside. This is why I started off this morning by talking about not listening to secular music and I chucked that out the window because we need to understand that, yes, if we're children of God, then God is going to be sanctifying us, filling us with his spirit. We're going to be pursuing holiness. God is going to be growing us into purity day by day until the day that we die. But, but, it is so important that we see the changes that God asks us to make, the decisions we make in pursuit of these things. It's so important for us to see those things as an act of worship in response to grace so that we are not like the Pharisees here and getting it completely backwards. I use those two examples at the beginning, but, but let me just give some more examples of ways that we as human beings can fall into the trap of these Pharisees of taking something that's perhaps good and elevating it to a position that's higher than it should be so that it becomes a bad thing. When I was, at high, when I was in high school, I went to four different high schools in four years, which is crazy. I punched a lot of kids in the face, got expelled. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that, but Four different high schools in four years, and I just remember my sophomore year, uh, I went to a Christian high school, Rincon Valley Christian High School in Santa Rosa, California. Man, I cussed like a sailor. My mom never heard it. Hi, mom. Sorry. Yeah, it's really sneaky. Man, I was an absolute mess. An absolute mess. And I love baseball, and so with, with baseball comes a love for hats. And so this is going to sound goofy to some of you guys, but I just love to wear my Giants hat because that's just what I did. So ultimately, I'd show up to school, and I'd be wearing a Giants hat. And somewhere along the line, somebody at this school or the church that was connected with this school decided that out of reverence and respect for the Lord, when somebody says, hey, bow your heads to pray, there was only one right way to do this. You had to take off your hat, right? That started as a great thing, honorable thing, worshiping the Lord, a reverence and respect, but I was a rebel, right? So I show up at this school and I could see the hypocrisy in this rule that I thought was dumb because I didn't read it in the Bible. And I'm going, no, I'm not taking off my stupid hat because what is there? An antenna between my brain and Jesus and the hat is like stopping it from working? No, it doesn't make sense to me at all. So this is like a silly example of something that started as a good thing that all of a sudden becomes this law and tradition. And, and I was just like, I, I just didn't agree with it in high school, right? Well, what's another one, right? I, uh, I have tattoos, Right? These are kind of hot button topic with the older generation. My grandma still hates them. But again, I'm a rebel, so I got to be honest. The reason why, a huge reason I was excited to get tattoos because I wanted to ruffle some feathers. I like to ruffle feathers. <laughs> but how many times have you heard that, right? Somebody, an older gentleman or, or somebody who's just like staunch in their ways, they come up to you and they're like, oh, tattoos are evil. Haven't you read Leviticus 19 that says you can't have tattoos? I'm like, yeah, the same chapter that says you can't have clothes woven of two different material. It's cotton or polyester. You better choose, right? <laughs> what am I getting at, guys? Look, if you want to take your hat off when you pray 
as an act of worship in response to grace, by all means. If I'm not going to watch the Fast and the Furious movies as an act of worship in response to grace, by all means, I can do that. It's great. If I don't want to fill my mind with with music that sings about sex, drugs, and alcohol, like a lot of our teens do, I'm not going to do it, right? Because I want to honor God with my thoughts, but it's as an act of worship in response to grace. It's not me doing these things so that I can get to God. This is Gospel 101. So here's the trap that we can fall into, though, when you think about this. Somebody comes up to us and they go, Hey, Mitch, how do I become a Christian? What do I do? And I go, well, let's talk about this. First of all, you can't listen to that secular music junk. That's so bad for your brain. Second of all, if you watch an R-rated movie, you're trash and you're probably condemned to hell. Third thing is if you have tattoos, you better be careful because that's against the rules. Third, like You just can go down the list, right? If you wear a hat when you pray, uh-oh, be careful. Right? Like you just start adding these lists and these rules and these regulations instead of bringing people to the feet of Jesus through the gospel. And if we're careful, if we're not careful, we can get so caught up with these rules and regulations just like the Pharisees in our list. And we need to be about the gospel. Or else, again, we meet somebody, we meet a Christian, and we think that we're better than everybody else because we don't do certain things, and we hear of a student in our high school ministry that listens to Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift, God forbid, and you go, are you even a Christian? You still watch the Fast and the Furious movies? Are you kidding me? You must not be saved. And we start putting ourselves on a pedestal instead of realizing and reminding ourselves and telling others that the good news of the gospel is this. That we, like the dude with the withered hand, have nothing to show. And we come before Jesus and Jesus in his grace because of the blood of his, the blood of the son cleanses us from all impurity, cleanses us from sin, makes us whole, that God takes broken sinner and he makes a new creation as we turn to him in faith and repent of our sin and he does a miraculous work so that positionally when we put our trust and faith in Jesus, we're no longer a sinner condemned to face the wrath of God for all of eternity, but now we're a child of God and we're an heir with Christ and we're justified. It's not the works, it's the grace of God that justifies alone. We cannot get it backwards. We cannot get it backwards. Justin, why don't you come on up, man? We'll have you lead us in some some worship. What's cool about this text in closing, guys, is we see this, I, I see this justification by by grace, through faith, this cessation of works all throughout the text. And, and I just wanted to throw this in there before we worship. And it's this, right? This Sabbath. I'll go back to that. It's the very beginning of what we're talking about. If you have your Bibles, just turn them to Hebrews chapter 4, please. This is so cool. It just hammers home this point. Because again, what these Pharisees were so 
intense about, so agitated about the Sabbath. They missed it on so many levels, but, but really we see in Hebrews 4 that, that they missed the whole point, that the Sabbath was this prescription given by God for the health of humanity, for rest, for his people, and grace. That's what it was temporarily, but it's also uh, a day of rest that points to an eternal reality that is all, uh, only found Excuse me, in Jesus. Read with me in Hebrews 4, verse 6, as we close and rejoice in the fact that we can stop working and rest in the salvation of Christ. It says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter into the rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, and the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've been striving and striving and working and working in an attempt to make your way to the Lord, listen, I, I would encourage you to enter into the rest that is the finished work of Jesus Christ, the justification that comes as a gift through Him that you might enter into the rest and rest from your works. And one day we're going to enter into that eternal rest with the Lord as we glory with Him in His presence for all eternity. Guys, Gospel 101. My high schoolers know it well. I never say anything new. I say the same thing over and over and over again because we need to hear it. Guys, justification by grace through faith. We rejoice in the finished work of Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we're so thankful for the firm foundation that we stand on as your children. God, we don't have to wonder if we've done enough good things to be in your good graces. We don't have to be obsessed with every single bit of following the law, Lord. We know that you, Jesus, fulfilled the law, that you fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And so we put our faith and trust in you, and we watch the burdens fall away. And God, we're thankful that you've given us the freedom and ability, Lord, to pursue purity and pursue holiness. But God, would the things that you lead us to do never become the main thing. The changes, the movies we don't watch, the music we don't listen to, what we wear, what we look like, all that stuff so, so secondary to the gospel. We want to bring people to the gospel and watch you work and sanctify your kids bit by bit. So God, thank you for reminding us this truth, God, that we need to be reminded of all the time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.